0: So now we're going to talk about why we suffer. Uh, You don't need to be a Buddhist at all to be here today. And it's arguable whether there even is such a thing as a Buddhist at all. But that said, uh, quick review, Uh, you may have heard the uh, four noble truths of the Buddha. Uh, The first truth being the noble truth of suffering. The fact of suffering, suffering exists, Uh, then the truth that it is uh, clinging of one kind or another that leads to suffering and we will see in a moment the sort of biology of that clinging and then the truth that it is release from clinging that leads to less suffering, ultimately to no suffering at all and then the Noble Eightfold Path as uh, one of the major ways, if not the Buddhist uh, roadmap to developing the causes that lead to the end of the clinging, that leads to the end of suffering. and. Fast forward, one of those causes is right concentration, and that's steadiness of mind essentially, which is kind of the heart of what we're getting into today. So in that context, quick Dharma summary, uh, I'm going to talk uh, here about how uh, the brain evolved to suffer, alas. And it's by understanding the grim news that we then start to have the skillful means we can use to help ourselves and others suffer less. Okay. So, um, how does this happen? Um, So let's see here. I will talk about how and why does um, the brain generate ignorance and clinging? Okay. So, first of all, the brain has five properties that help us survive, produce grandchildren, but they also lead to suffering. The separation of the organism and the world, identification with the body, anxiety of survival, seeking stability in a changing world, and pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And I'm going to go through those um, quite briskly and quickly. Uh, It's easy to get kind of fascinated with this material, argumentative about it, philosophical about it, what have you. Hope you'll bear with me. Uh, Just moving right through this fairly briskly. Okay, so first of all, let's think about the distinction between the organism and the world. On the one hand, it's absolutely essential to be self distinct from world. In other words, to live in duality rather than oneness. I mean, organisms are defined by their boundaries between themselves and the rest of the world, even the simplest organisms such as a virus. I mean, right now, if you know, imagine your skin. Without your skin, we'd all be... Without a skin, we'd all be in a world of trouble, right? It was about a skin. We'd be leaky. Uh, we'd be very, very leaky. We wouldn't last <laughs> very long at all. Um, so every organism—I don't care if you're a virus or an NFL linebacker—you've got to. No comparison intended there, but anyway, similarity. But <laughs> you need to—you uh, need to separate yourself. From the world. Okay, now we apply that sort of dualistic orientation at a conceptual level too. Uh, me versus you, us versus them, inside versus outside, and those uh, conceptual simplifications of a world that is obviously and actually all one. Okay, it's all one thing. All right, all those uh, distinctions are arbitrary, yet. They allow us to work through the world very efficiently and avoid the chomp. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but as I said, um, you know, even though that illusion of duality helps us um, operate in the world, it leads us to experience a subtle strain in our separation from the world, and it feeds the tendency to regard the world as threatening or something to be contended with or dealt with or alternately something to be exploited. Think about, you know, American history, for example, the movement through the West as a natural environment to be endlessly exploited with infinite resources, which we're now discovering are finite. But um, that tendency to separate self from world um, does also lead us to suffer. The next major category is what we called identification with the body. Um, it's deeply, deeply central to survive that the organism must be aware of its own bodily state in order to survive. For example, a worm, let alone a paramecium or even a spider, isn't really that uh, well equipped to read the environment altogether. But boy does that spider, boy does that worm, boy does that uh, paramecium need to know what its internal state is. And so It's a natural step to go from awareness of the body to caring about the body to identification of the body, and then suddenly anything that happens to the body happens to me, including old age, disease, and death. And suddenly, ooh, there's a pang of suffering right there. Um, Okay, good. All right? Okay, so far? We were prey long before we were predators. The anxious lizard, the anxious rat, the anxious monkey survived. The nervous monkey lived. The, you know, peaceful, it's all going to be good, it's all good, what's up? Think about, I don't know. Anyway, I'm thinking about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, or something like that. You know, those guys didn't last very long in the wild. And um, the brain is hardwired to be watchful and to detect threats. One of the things we're going to do later in terms of conditions that support steadiness of awareness is to work with uh, the sense of feeling safe so that by virtue of feeling safer, at least, we can bring vigilant awareness in, bring attention in, and apply it to our internal state and towards steadiness of mind. Um, It's also true that the... um, you know, anxiety basically registers out of bound conditions in the equilibria that enable an organism to keep on going. And I'll talk a little bit more about uh, that tendency to seek uh, stability in an endlessly impermanent and changing world. Um, but the, uh, we, get, we register out of bound states through anxiety, signal anxiety and psychological lingo. It signals us it's informative anxiety is informative it's telling us something and that's a major way the brain um, uses uh, to tell you that you need to flee or to fight you need to freeze or to appease you need to tend or to befriend you know it's through anxiety nonetheless anxiety is an unpleasant experience anybody who is predisposed in that direction as I am knows it's not very pleasant Um, It tends to push down positive feelings, it tends to overestimate the negative, Um, it's distracting and as I said, it makes it harder to bring attention inward. In all those ways, the anxiety that is our birthright, that's a major method for survival still makes us suffer. Next as I alluded to, if you think about it, everything is changing, the universe is changing. Um, There's quantum instability. The Milky Way galaxy rotates about every 200 million years. Uh, You know, the sun moves around the galaxy every 200 million years. In about four billion years, our normal little star will expand to the size of a red giant, swallow Mercury, Venus, and Earth, perhaps Mars as well. I mean, nothing will be here five, 10 billion years from now because it will be absorbed by the sun if we don't happen to have some problems sooner when the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy come together in one or two billion years, and who knows what's going to happen then? All right. Um, one of the things we do in the Wise Brain Bulletin is we send out um, slide, uh, you know, things of uh, pictures of the galaxies and the universe and stuff like that. We call it Grateful Wonder. We have this section, uh, and uh, one of them, I think the last issue, had pictures of galaxies interacting with each other. You know, strains of stars coming together, passing, coming together, passing, coming together and sticking and forming a new galaxy. So change happens, right? No way around it. But what does the organism do to live, to survive? It seeks stasis in in an unchanging world. I often ask myself, you know, why do we suffer fundamentally? What is suffering? and what causes clinging to arise. And one of the fundamental ways clinging arises is that it tries to stabilize that which is unstable. In a certain sense, you know, the now, the endless now is rushing by. We stand as if at the tip of a waterfall, always trying to reach over the edge, you know, to hold on to what's gone by, to keep it with us, right? to preserve the pleasant and keep it here. And um, you know, even as we wave the unpleasant on. All right? Yet, we can't do it. We can't hold on to the now. I mean, isn't that one of the most amazing things about existence, that the now is always changing? It's endlessly disappearing and yet re-arising. It's in front of our nose all along. Uh, George Orwell had this great line, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant effort. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the now is endlessly disappearing is right in front of our nose, but it really takes steadiness of awareness and a constant effort of that mm-hmm. to really see that and to, to, uh, to, to um, harvest its implications. Pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. Uh, you're probably aware that the Buddha talked about one of the five fundamental aggregates of existence is the endless feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that's attached to our experience. And that's why one of the four foundations of mindfulness, one of the big four, right? The body, The feeling tone, contents of mind, and essentially um, the state of consciousness that we have uh, and the kind of consciousness we have. Those four. Of those big four that the Buddha said, if you pay attention to this steadily and deeply, you can gain the insights that will lead to your absolute liberation. One of those four is the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So the organism uses that to know whether to approach or to avoid. Approach the pleasant to eat it or mate with it, all right? <laughs> avoid the unpleasant by fighting or fleeing or freezing or appeasing, and, um, and then last, if it's sort of neutral, eh, ignore it, get deluded about it, move on looking for the pleasant. All right? That's what the organism does. And that's very deep in the brain. We talked later about equanimity a little bit and um, there's a really deep brain circuit. There are circuitry involving different parts of the brain down in the um, area of the limbic system, just on top of the brain stem, that generates this feeling tone. It's really kind of cool to get, in this particular case, a very nice mapping between the Dharma and the neurology. And we'll talk a little more about it. Nonetheless, pursuing the pleasant and resisting the unpleasant in a world in which both endlessly change is a course of prescription for suffering. It's an engine of suffering, as the third Zen patriarch said. The great way is easy, for one with no preferences at all. And then, last, if you just think about it from a kind of um, you know poignant sense, um, so much of practice is truly about swimming up- upstream. It is about um, you know working with, controlling and um, transcending the fundamental tendencies that enabled us to have grandchildren, but which make us suffer. And that's a way, I think, to be very compassionate with ourselves for how hard this practice is, in a way, and how long it can take. Yes, it can have much about it that's easy, to be sure, and joyous and beautiful, lots and lots of intrinsic rewards. And it's important to not get too caught up in the goal-directedness. Right, uh, you know, aiming for liberation or, or seeking goals like steadier attention. That said, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there is a way in which we are trying to uh, master and move beyond, you know, this incredible inheritance from evolution, and to us that puts it in a very, very kind of deep context. Um, okay. so let's okay. see. So now we're gonna do a little meditation. Wanna talk to me?
1: yeah. Okay. A little moment of gratitude for not having to listen so hard, right? So take up your seat on a chair, cushion, floor. Bring your body into balance and alignment. Your feet and knees braced on the floor, buttocks on the cushion of the chair or the zoppy. Your spine balanced vertebra upon vertebra like a stack of gold coins. Your head gently resting on the top. Balanced. Relaxed. A human being halfway between heaven and earth with the right to be here. As a way to settle further into the quiet, take a few deeper breaths, and with each out breath, let go and sink deeper. To a state of just being aware of what is now. Just letting that rushing stream of experience pass you by. Just watching, noting, aware. Maybe noticing the busyness happening in the mind about all the stuff that we presented today. Our stories, your stories, questions, <coughs> comments, opinions, feelings, sensations. Of it going by staying with the breath. letting the rest of it go. Two breaths, and off runs the monkey mind after another story. when you find yourself someplace else, come back to the breath. But be sure you know that you woke up right there and came back. That's a moment of awakening. That's one of the things your brain can do. So if you wish, for the next few minutes notice the subtle or maybe not so subtle suffering that shows up in the quiet. The suffering of separation. Suffering of being identified with this body, the suffering of surviving. even down to the cellular level of trying to maintain balance in a changing world. Suffering of clinking and pursuing pleasure, running away from pain, even the subtle suffering of neutral. you can get a hint or a taste or a flavor of the freedom from suffering and just being aware of suffering. Oh, it's like this. while you were meditating I changed the slide Christina Feldman said standard Dharma talk from misery to joy Um, so now the good news what's the state of the brain when you're experiencing quiet happiness ease or peace in other words, not suffering. Well, the parasympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system is more activated in that state. The sympathetic system is all about fight, flight, freeze, appease, you know, run away from the saber-toothed tiger. The parasympathetic wing is rest, digest, calm, quiet. It's actually much more key. If you can you can cut as we do sometimes in pain research. You can cut the sympathetic nervous system out of a certain part of the body and stop pain, but the the body is still ongoing. If you cut the parasympathetic system out, the body dies. But the parasympathetic is more basic and it's actually much more associated with relaxed contentment. Pleasant hormones, neurotransmitters such as endorphins and some of the neurotransmitters, serotonin, dop- dopamine, norepinephrine, and the binding hor- uh, the binding bonding hormone of oxytocin are bathing the reward ses- uh, centers of the brain. And you tend, if you look at the EEG data, there tends to be more slow wave activity, delta and theta, a little bit of resonant high-frequency beta activity going on on top. And in particular, there's increasing coherence, which is the idea that the brain is moving together, that the electrical circuits are oscillating in, in synchrony, uh, fitting together in an integrated way across both hemispheres and between the front and the back of the brain. When you're trying to decide something, for example, if you're trying to make a decision about where to go to dinner or you know what deductions to try to lie yeah, about on, on your taxes... Uh, your brainwaves have obviously a certain amount of the cross-current jangled quality to them. It's like an ocean waves in a bay with a strong tidal rip and the wind coming in the other direction. But when you arrive at that decision, your brainwaves tend to come into rhythm, into resonance with each other. And they're really solid studies, but when the brain makes a decision to do something, all of a sudden, boing, this resonance shows up. So, in effect, what that says is that the natural resting state of the brain, when it's not troubled by decisions or worries or problems, um, has a settled, even-keeled, stable hum to it. The point about that natural resting state of the brain is consistent with results of a technique called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or reprogramming, EMDR, which is presently one of the, uh, the uh, premier methods in psychology for dealing with trauma. It um, started with EMDRs. You can actually use any sensory system. You can use touch. You can use sound. But it, the what happens is if you move your eyes back and forth rapidly, left, right, left, right, focusing on something, somewhat somewhat similar to the rapid eye movements that occur during, uh, during REM deep dreaming states. And you start with a, and you have somebody do this while in the context of remembering a painful experience, they will tend to wind up with this very peaceful centered feeling and it's been replicated and replicated. Interestingly, if you take a person who's uh, peaceful and centered and balanced and you have them do EMDR, nothing changes. They're still peaceful and centered and balanced. It's kind of cool. So when the brain reprocesses to its resting state, when you hit the escape control alt delete button, It's peaceful, alert, and happy. That's kind of nice. And in in a way, to sort of elaborate on that and take a flight of fancy, it's a neurologically grounded way of affirming the existence of bodhicitta, which is understood in Buddhism, obviously, as the natural purity of of the heart mind. It's clear and it's caring. It's very wise. So our underlying nature, this real basic uh, nature of our brains, may be obscured and clouded by greed or hatred or delusion, the three poisons, such as the natural coherence of the brains routinely rattled by the slings and arrows of, uh, of everyday life. But ultimately, down on the ground, that's who we are. And that's pretty wonderful news, that that's our essential and fundamental nature.
0: Yeah, you do that part. Oh goodness! I get to do this part. That's great. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> I thought I was going to do another part. It's felt good. All right. So meditation. Meditation is a premier training of the brain, and it does so in many ways. Uh, for one, it um, activates the will. Which is to say, as that gentleman said earlier, in a sense, or my response to him was about, can we direct our own thoughts? Uh, The frontal lobes are very much involved in what are called the executive functions. It's very much there that we do um, exert the will, if you will. And also, uh, if you think about the Dharma and very much about practice, it involves very often the deliberate application of thought to one object or another or the deliberate control or regulation of various impulses. If you think about the um, three fundamental, if you will, pillars of practice, sila, samadhi, and panna, sila being virtue or restraint, samadhi being concentration, panna being wisdom, each one of those three involves a lot of willfulness. And meditation is both the expression of that willfulness and the training of that willfulness. It also meditation also trains uh, attention. Uh, there's a lot of research on this, definitely, including um, particularly attention that's called interoception to the internal state of the organism. And um, you know meditators, uh, in terms of studies, tend to have more capacity to uh, metacognize, to think about their own thinking, in other words, to observe their own mental processes. Uh, Sancte Davis quote there is pretty great, isn't it? You know, a person whose mind is distracted lives between the fangs of mental afflictions. You know, kind of shortened to the point. Um, Meditation also increases empathy. It does so in part by training the anterior cingulate cortex, that orange caterpillar that lit up in the slide that we showed earlier, kind of in the center of the brain, two of them basically, although the slide just showed one. And that part of the brain is very involved in um, empathy. Uh, So when you train that attention to yourself, you become more capable of being empathic to other people. It's one of the great fruits of meditation is the cultivation of of the capacity to sense how it is for another person. Um, Meditation also trains the brain to enter and remain in wholesome states of mind. We do less harm to the world when we're happy. Uh, So, for example, um, let's see here. yeah. The um, hypoth- meditation basically teaches part of your brain called, called the hypothalamus and the stem to reward the rest of the brain for doing a good job and being in a good state of mind, and all of this establishes positive states that then become traits or states become goals, which is a major development and in developmental psychology. In other words, you want to um, have positive states of mind be rewarding to yourself. I, I myself think a lot that the crux in life is to how to help ourselves want what's good for us, right? How do we do that? Well, by making that which is good for us as rewarding as possible. And when we <laughs> meditate and abide in these very happy, peaceful states to the degree that we do, we are making those states of mind rewarding for ourselves. Okay? Uh, long-term meditators, interestingly, um, have resting state brain waves that are resting more or stable more in a calm and contented pattern. That's a reliable finding. They also have literally thicker regions of the brain. Now that thickerness is a fraction of a millimeter, but that means millions of synapses. And uh, so meditators have discernibly thicker regions of the brain in the parts of the brain that have to do with the control of attention that anterior cingulate cortex, as well as parts of the brain that have to do with interoception, particularly sensing the internal state of the body. Okay, in other words, the more you meditate, the more you change your brain. And interestingly and happily, for those of us with gray hair, at least some of us in the front of the room, maybe a few in the back of the room, but anyway. Some of
1: us with no hair at all. Yeah, there you go.
0: Is that these effects are more pronounced in older people. In other words, there's some beginnings of evidence that supports the intuitive finding that meditation and sustained contemplative practice can reduce the cognitive declines associated with aging. In fact, as Rick points out, there's an interesting study. We don't quite know what it means, but we know what they found that, um, how can I put it, that less Alzheimer's was associated with more history of contemplative practice. And a lot of that's not even in Buddhism, but in other forms of religion. All right, more religiosity you know, Buddhism doesn't have a monopoly on contemplation or the benefits uh, of practice uh, is found to be associated with less cognitive decline. And as Rick points out, as a guy who works with you know, dementia, you can get the same benefit uh, in terms of e- reduction of dementia from meditation or history of meditation as you can from the best prescription meds. That's saying something.
1: Okay putting myself out of a job. Uh, there you go. <laughs> okay,
0: so the question then, how to cultivate these really, really important brain states. And this just, if you will, allows me to repeat a very important point. I'm repeating it because it's important, which is that subjective states of well-being correspond to and are enabled by underlying objective states of material brain. Okay? And so, by uh, going back and forth between trying to understand what are the objective, material, neurological brain states that support and enable subjective, extraordinary, immaterial states of well being and goodness. By knowing that, then you can cleverly, uh, like a clever ape, right, Homo sapiens, use the tools to activate the brain states that support those subjective states of well being, those psychological states. So the Buddha laid out a really, really good roadmap, which is the uh, conceptual structure of what we're doing today. He basically said that there are these milestones toward awakening in which the mind becomes progressively refined and steadied to the point that enables liberating insight to occur. What are those steps in this roadmap? First the mind is steadied internally. Second, it's quieted. Third, it's brought to singleness. Fourth, it's concentrated. We'll talk about what each of those mean. And then on the basis of that, there is liberating insight. So what Rick and I have done and what we're going to talk about today is what is the neurological operationalization of a mind that is studied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, or concentrated. And we're even gonna guess toward the end of the day about what is the neurological operationalization of liberating insight even to the point of nibbana, nirvana. So that's a little out there, but we're gonna go for it. So... Hubris is one of our major faults. (laughs) Right, so what does it mean psychologically to be steadied internally? It means there's a stable stability of attention. In other words, attention is steady and it steadily stays steady. Okay. Quiet means there isn't very much verbal activity, there's not much sensory motor stimuli or sense of sensory motor processing. Uh, Think of it as kind of a still pond with very few emotional waves. Now these are all psychological states, I'm using the language of subjectivity and immateriality if you will, but each of these subjective conditions, psychological states, can be mapped with increasing clarity, still 1710, but doing pretty well, mapped with increasing clarity to underlying states of the brain. Okay, Singleness. Now we're moving into Uh, a non-ordinary state of awareness. Uh, In terms of something we'll talk more about later, the jhana factors. uh, This to us is the fifth factor, akagata, which is sometimes called one-pointedness. This is a great collectedness of awareness. Uh, One is largely absorbed in the object of attention, uh, withdrawn from most everything else. Thoughts are kind of wispy and peripheral in the background. Um, there's a sense of it's all one percept. All the contents of awareness have a sense of coherence and integration to them. And there's near perfect equanimity. There's very little reaction to the pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone that still may be rippling through the mind. Now, this is an attainable state of mind. We're not even yet into the jhanas. This is the run-up to it. We haven't even lifted off Okay, But this is attainable. And then uh, next, concentrated. This is where uh, in Buddhist language we talk about truly non-ordinary states of awareness. Um, jhanas or samadhis. It's very interesting that as Buddhism came to the West to reflect on what happened, uh, one thing that happened, uh, is a topic that interests me greatly, as well as some people at Spirit Rock, including James Peres, <coughs> one of our great teachers, is what Buddhism left behind a lot of when it moved to the West was community, Sangha, you know, it's which is the context in which Buddhism occurs. Now here we have the beginnings of Sangha. It's a great thing. But another thing that got left behind is that for a long time, many teachers were reluctant to really talk about these non-ordinary states, the jhanas. But if you read the Pali Canon, Pali being the language in which the first surviving written record of the discourses of the Buddha uh, uh, appeared in, uh, right concentration, or wise concentration, which is one of the eight elements of the Noble Eightfold Path, is tantamount to these non-ordinary states called the jhanas. In fact, as Buddhism moved through China and then into Japan, the word jhana became dhyan or dhyana, which became zen. Okay, The origin of the word zen is jhana. Right? It's that central. So um, obviously there's some pitfalls around jhanas. People can get very goal-directed, even egoic about that. Um, nonetheless, it's a very important <laughs> thing and is, enough, and is our inheritance as Buddhist practitioners or just human beings to have these capacities in the brain. Now we're in the jhanas when you're concentrated. It's non-ordinary, experience intensifies. Uh, I'm, we're not gonna do a lot here about the jhanas. Um, it, it is said that there essentially are eight uh, we're really talking today, we're going to talk some about the first four. Uh, if you've had them or you haven't. It's uh, my grandfather said to me the first time I went fishing. I said, Grandpa, how will I know there's a fish on the end of the line? He said, trust me, Rick, you'll know. There's no, there's, you could totally tell the difference between a live critter on the end of the line and an old piece of boot or seaweed. The thing is when you enter these non-ordinary states of awareness, you're not in Kansas anymore they are really different right? and you know are
1: so take your red shoes there you go <laughs> okay
0: and with them are these pervading feelings of rapture bliss happiness contentment and tranquility these are emotional states emotions are very central to buddhist practice another thing that often gets lost i think as buddhism moved to the west it became this sort of hyper rational collection of teachings but in fact emotion and the heart is absolutely central to practice and liberation So, on the basis of these, one has insight. Insight is the ultimate aim. Uh, Steadiness of mind, which is very rewarding. It it contains pleasures that the Buddha said are all right to seek. In fact, they are good to seek those pleasures. Uh, Nonetheless, they ultimately are to be transcended in the liberating insight that moves beyond all uh, ordinary states of pleasure. Insight is nourished by this preliminary, the stability, the quiet, the collectedness of the brain. Okay. Yet, ultimately, we think liberating insight transcends causality because it is by definition, correct, the unconditioned. Ultimately, liberation is not conditioned. So we're not trying to say that these conditions lead inexorably to liberating Ivana. On the other hand, if the apple falls from the tree, Ultimately, by grace, its ripening is due to preceding causes and conditions. The sun, the water, the skillfulness of the gardener, and all the rest. So what we're here today to do is to promote the preceding causes and conditions that lead ultimately to that mysterious, graceful process of complete release. So to that end, now let's do another meditation, and in this meditation, I will guide you to the best I can, bit by bit, through these stages, to see if you can get a kind of taste of them. And let's be clear here, first of all, try not to fall into the pitfall of striving. In other words, there's kind of a sweet spot. There's the Zen saying that we should be with our minds like the rider of a horse, neither too tight nor too loose a rein. That's how we want to be with our minds here. But see what you can get. It's often quite amazing. As Ramana Maharshi said, the biggest barrier to enlightenment is the belief that we can't get it. We can't have it. It's not possible for us in our own case. Allow yourself and your mind go as far as it will naturally go as we do this meditation and then see what you get and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about it. Okay? So first, if you will, with your eyes open or closed and feel free to follow my instructions or to completely ignore them, get a sense of being in your own body. with perhaps a sense of awareness of the body as a whole, not awareness moving from part to part, but a sense of the body as one whole thing breathing here. If you like, establishing the intention to steady the mind ever more deeply. intention, you might like to bring your attention to the breath. The sensations of the breath felt perhaps in the belly or the chest or around the upper lip. You're welcome to use another object of attention, but I will refer to the breath. you like, try to bring your attention to every part of each breath from beginning to end. Applying your attention to the beginning of the breath and sustaining it through the course of the inhalation. And then applying your attention again and sustaining it through the course of each fresh exhalation. giving attention over to the simplicity of receiving each single breath. That's the purpose here, nothing else to do. reintending at the beginning of each inhalation or exhalation to stay with the sensations of the breath. Staying anchored with the breath, you might notice a growing quiet in the mind. A quiet which you might gently help into being. Disengaging from words, settling more and more deeply into the core of your being and the core of your body, following each individual breath. there may be a growing sense of spaciousness in awareness mind sense perhaps like a vast space a vast cave perhaps Tension stabilizes, there could be a sense of all experience being just one unified percept, one unified thing. Pointed, stable presence with a stable awareness of the breath. singleness of awareness that may be present, you might also notice a kind of bodily pleasure, a bliss or rapture pulsing through you perhaps, maybe aided with a little quickening of the breath to bring the energy up. You might notice that pleasure giving you a kind of brightening of the mind And whatever you experience is, of course, fine. And alongside that rapture, perhaps, could be a softer feeling of happiness or contentment or tranquility. And those feelings help steady the mind further. It's all right to open up to those happinesses if they're there or to encourage them into being. might even experiment with seeing if you can intensify the happiness with breathing exploring in your own mind and experimenting with skillfulness. What helps your mind become more concentrated? A focus on the breath, perhaps? Or more of an intensification of these feelings of happiness or rapture? See what works for you whatever concentration is in fact present perhaps widen your awareness to allow some insights perhaps to come forward insights into the nature of your nature of your experience or even the nature of reality landing on a concentrated mind to good effect. We'll take just one more minute with this meditation. Whatever you experienced was fine. See if you can help yourself during this last minute, settle your mind even more deeply.
1: What we would thought we would do for the next 15-20 minutes is take some questions or discussion about what we've gone through this morning, which you may have experienced in the two meditations, um, and then uh, go to lunch. So I'm going to pass the microphones back?
2: You talked about the awakening, uh, the mini awakenings of you know, coming back to the breath when you've been off stress somewhere. And I'd um, like to talk about more what that has to do with um, what happens in the brain. Is there something, is that tracing, a, is that making a, a pathway in the brain? Is that like opening up a synapse? What's going on there? Do, do I mean, you talked about all the different... Um, mm-hmm states you know the brain states
1: i think it, the the the, sh- the short answer to that is that when you set yourself to do a task of remaining focused you know just as rick was doing in this last guided meditation you're, you're trying to head for steadiness and quiet and concentrated that's not our usual state of brain our usual state of brain is you know dancing around looking, looking 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 trying to so we're, we're trying to discipline the mind and really, sh- and really sharpen that, uh, that sword of insight, basically. And when you, tr- when you do that, you set the intention to do a task. And then you start, and then you find yourself off task. You know, one, two, three breaths. That's just all of our experience. Um, and actually, that, that piece that I put in there was something that happened that kind of I kind of realized, which was that as I am coming back to the task, there is that little moment where I woke up, where I said, "Oh, I'm not on task. I need to be here," and that is that is a moment of pure awareness of the state that I am in at this moment, as opposed to where I set myself to be. That actually has a little flavor of Nibbana in it and most of the time and what in the, the wrestling match that happened is that as I tried to stay on task, I, you know I would find myself you know thinking about grandmother's chocolate chip cookies or what I was going to have for dinner that night or you know the exercise program I'm on or you know, all these other kind of things that come in and I would be punishing myself off task bad meditator bad meditator. And I, went, and I went, wait a minute. That's not the case. I just woke up. And it's a way of flipping that 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 thing of feeling like you're a failure and really supporting your practice by realizing that awakening is also a property of mind just as distraction.
2: It also, for me at least, it has a quality of... Not being volitional there was that initial awakening is not volitional it just happens mm-hmm. just as just as the string of course does too yeah thank you thank you
0: by the way I, I want to say whenever we, we do a guided meditation um, we ask your forgiveness going up front at just the nature of a guided meditation and if you ever want to mm. disengage from the guidedness of it you're welcome to do that um, <coughs>
1: We, yeah, can join, we can join the engine noises from the rail. Yeah,
0: I'm kind of curious. How many people got at least a taste of the, some of these things up here? Steady, quiet, concentrated. Yeah, now isn't that amazing? 20 minutes, just went for it. Fantastic, isn't it? That that capability is there. gives one hope. Okay, other questions, comments? How about right behind you, the woman right behind you, and then the woman behind her.
2: You mentioned EMDR. I have um, some friends who are therapists who have been talking about, apparently there's now a, an electrical current type of therapy you can use to create a different kind of um, soothing in the brain. Um, could you comment about that? I, it, I find it very interesting.
1: I don't, I don't know that literature well enough to comment in real professional depth on it. Uh, but the, to the extent that I know it, um, it appears to be a property of stimulating the brain in alternating hemispheres, and that there is something about um, you know left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain that takes you out of the left brain's constant story or the right brain's constant fear and the reactions. By providing an opposite stimulus, that's what I think is happening. I think that there may, the, the fact that it started at EMDR and then it moved to touching alternate legs, you know, um, and, and other alternate sounds means that it is not a property of the, intri- of the single sensory system. It's a property of how that that sensation enters the brain. Thanks. Now behind you.
0: Um, can you uh, comment on your, uh, I guess your, op- can you comment on your opinions on
2: what drives us to transcend besides the fact that we find reward? Is there something else hmm. that's tipping us towards it?
0: That's a beautiful question. I want to repeat it because it was so wonderful. Uh, which is the question? If I heard you correctly, what is it that drives us? to transcend, to liberation, enlightenment, if you will, uh, or far along. I think of it in mountain terms because I'm a rock climber guy. You know, I think of the plains and the foothills and the lower mountains and the higher mountains than Mount Everest, okay? If Everest is Nibana. You know, just getting Which up to the, the foothills death. is pretty good. <laughs> anyway, uh, what drives us to that? Is it just simply the desire to escape the cage of suffering uh, or is it something more? And I don't know for sure. I looked to the life of the Buddha, and it certainly was an encounter with suffering, which, at least as the stories go, motivated him, of course, his encounter with the three divine messengers, old age, disease, and death. Yet, on the other hand, isn't it interesting that, that story includes the fourth messenger? you know the fourth messenger being a wandering renunciate, a monk, uh, could have been a woman, we don't know, uh, as well and Uh, My own answer, and since it's a personal opinion, even though I love commenting on my opinions, as you said earlier, um, I'll move on. But it's simply that within us, there's both the yearning to be free of our suffering and a fundamental intuition about our own truest and deepest nature. And we want to be both free from that suffering. We want to be rejoined to our truest nature and to live from that. And then I think as well is an impulse toward generosity and cooperation and goodness with others that recognizes that um, we are at our best in many ways when we're not in a state of pain and suffering. Some people are quite amazing. They can be incredible in a state of agony, but most of us, it's on purpose, it's on path in terms of goodness to others to suffer less ourselves. It's pro-social to be happy. (laughs) <laughs> you know, this is a good thing. Okay, thanks. You? To the right there? And then we'll pass it back there if we can. Okay.
2: In the first meditation you said something that was simple but it was very powerful and that was you have the right to be here. And somehow it helped me focus Mm -hmm. It was very grounding. Thank you. And what did you mean by that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm saying it really was beautiful, but I am wondering, why was it so powerful? What was behind it?
1: A lot of the basic uh, suttas and the Maja and a lot of instructions for meditation in the Theravadan tradition begin with the phrase O nobly born O sons and daughters of the Buddha this basically uh, for me it's an evocation of the fact that your incarnation as a 46 chromosome mammalian species member entitles you to sit there it is your biology it is your right Thank you. To kind of build
0: on that in a way to link to what I was just getting at, if you think of practice, it pretty much has two parts to it. One part is the slow grind of mm-hmm. reducing the causes and conditions of suffering, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's to give ourselves over to our best selves, to right. our best parts, right. to our truest and deepest nature. And that's always already present, right? Maybe obscured, but by definition it's always already present. And those two, those two rhythms or dynamics kind of define practice. And it's actually interesting and useful to ask yourself which one is your strong suit and which one would help you to balance more. You know, as a creature of the 60s in the self-help human potential movement, grinding through the causes of suffering, I really had that one down. And it's been greatly useful for me to just give over more and more to Beingness to, if you will, whatever is bodhicitta inside everyone. And after lunch, we'll really get into what could be going on in the brain and bodhicitta, which is pretty out there. How about people back there? Anybody? In the hinterlands? How about her right there? We'll start in front and then move back. Okay. How about you right here first and then there?
2: Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little more about um, when you said the role of emotions in the heart is important. And did you mean I thought maybe you meant just what we just said to give over to our natural happiness? And I wonder if you can elaborate any more, and also talk about how the limbic part of the
0: brain takes out. Thank you. Um, we're going to say a little bit more about this over lunch, uh, after lunch rather, um, maybe over lunch too. I don't know, but. Uh, and um, with Rick's indulgence I'll say a part that we're gonna actually do in a very summary way. It's in the slides and it's in the methods section in your handout but we're just gonna kind of blaze through it to focus more on meditative stuff today. That said, um, if you think about just the, just take the jhana factors, these are five factors um, seen as major aids to these non-ordinary states of awareness which are the platform, in most cases for truly liberating insight. That's how the Buddha did it himself. He talked about his own night of enlightenment in terms of moving through the jhanas and then beyond. All right, two of, those, of the five aims, two of the five jhana factors are positive emotion, rapture, bliss, and variations of joy, which kind of mm-hmm. are on a continuum from happiness through contentment to deep tranquility. So right there, it's seen how that can happen. Uh, Second, it's very interesting that in the brain, uh, dopamine, which is the major neurotransmitter that registers positive emotion, it's also the major neurotransmitter that's uh, deployed uh, in cocaine. Uh, So it gives you a sense of its power. Deployed,
1: exploited, and blasted out.
0: Yeah. Dopamine, it's very interesting the way attention is stabilized. So I'm going to do this kind of riff fast here. Think of attention uh, basically as a... A field with a gate, alright? And the, when the gate opens, whoosh, it lets in new inputs. When the gate is closed, you're able to stay present with what's in the field. That's how attention basically works. Um, it is surges of dopamine that pop open the gate and allow new information in. When you are in a state of bliss or joy, dopamine levels are already high. They're therefore near their ceiling and they can't search.
1: In other words, great bliss or joy helps steady the mind. Which is why steadying the mind feels so blissful.
0: Who knew? And one of the practices that was given to me by uh, Christina Feldman, one of my root teachers, uh, is uh, to practice with intensifying happiness, to intensify it almost for a few seconds and then let it subside into a more of a diffuse sense of happiness and then intensify it again and just play with that to become more skillful in one's own mind.
1: One one of the other things that I wanted to riff off, what I think also part of your question was, was the the positive states and the sort of the heart piece. And I think in terms of the the Eastern traditions, the concept of heart mind has actually got it more correct. Uh, than the typical Western idea of splitting the brain off, you know, sort of somewhere around here and dropping the rest of it down. Uh, there's a great book by Antonio Damasio called *The Feeling of What Happens*. D a m a s i o. Listed in, uh, which uh, is in, in our resources. In our area. resources, this guy just happens to be the chairman of the Department of Neurology at Iowa. Uh, so it's not exactly, you know, a uh, uh, an Eastern meditation text but he talks about that the first point of consciousness arising is that point at which the feeling tone of the internal state of the body begins to show up in the brainstem that's your consciousness So it turn- and it turns out that if you look at the autonomic nervous system like two-thirds of the autonomic nervous system is sensory input not motor output so the autonomic nervous system is not all about control. A lot of the autonomic nervous system is about finding out what's going on. And so the this, this system is not divided. The system is integrated. And when, when we speak of the nervous system, we're, we may be talking about brain and brainstem, but when you talk about the interconnectedness of the nervous system, you're talking about things that go down all the way to the base of the toes. And that, that, that is actually an integrated uh, system in a dynamic thing and much of what we talk about in terms of emotion has to do with the integration of hormonal and internal awareness, interoceptive things that Rick had talked about earlier. Yeah.
0: Joy also is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, joy yeah. aids motivation. You know, it's like how to help ourselves want what's good for ourselves is to find the joy in them too. Um, joy also makes us uh, nicer people. Uh, right? We tend to be more loving toward others when we are you know, feeling more heartfelt. And last, and then we'll get to you. Um, it also strikes me that the real measure of practice uh, is the purification of the emotions. Yes. And people will say that. It's not so much that people have memorized the Dharma or even so much that they are just wizards of steadiness of mind, but that over a time, their heart transforms. That's the true measure of practice that so that, you know, hatred, especially and aversion, don't arise so much anymore. Anyway, yeah, please. I Oh, it's the other end. What is the
2: effect of
0: meditation in the electricity of the brain? Because I have said I sometimes that something is sounding or something
2: is happening but I cannot understand it. And also the chemistry of
0: the brain, of the different substances. Because I think anxiety, depression is also a, caused by chemicals. So it would be the question. Hmm.
1: Um, to some extent the the question about what's going on in the brain in meditation is kind of the focus of our whole discussion today. Um, and we are going to be talking a little bit about some more of what happens to some of the neurotransmitters and the neuroanatomy. I think the take home message, uh, the short and sweet answer to the question is that in meditation, we're now getting data to, to support some of the 2,500 year old concepts that were elucidated by the Buddha, that these have a reality and so for me personally as a neurologist there's this tremendous sense of faith based on present scientific evidence that these other truths which were not based on MRI scans but were based on self-observation by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of monastics over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and recollections and comparisons and have the same kind of evidentiary base uh, that uh, that Western science over the last two hundred and fifty years has had that tho- that those are now comparable data sets, and what we're now trying to do is come up with the translation dictionary so that when it's, when when I say something on the order of the Kagatata singleness, well we understand that as an FRI, fMRI picture of this well, uh, not there yet but... but that's but that is the direction that things are happening and uh, and so the and the initial clues, the initial studies, begin to suggest that there that there is this correspondence, um, and so that when we talk about it in terms of uh, poly language and use a poly term, that there may that there is a just as we said at the beginning of today's talk, there is a corresponding objective brain state that correlates with, directly one on one with that term.
0: I would just build on that in three ways just to kind of bottom line. And one is that when you're in a state of meditative, you know, kind of steadiness, if you will, um, chemicals in the brain tend to be dominated by, you know, wholesome, pleasant neurotransmitters. You know, we're calm, we're happy. Um, It's probably also the case, for example, if you think about a hormone neurotransmitter called oxytocin, which nursing mothers experience a lot of. Um, that's probably really quite present when people are doing meta meditation, loving-kindness mm-hmm. meditation, for example. Second, um, it is also true that certain parts of the brain tend to get particularly active during meditation and other parts tend to get particularly quiet. The parts that tend to get active are the ones about awareness of awareness, that's the cingulate cortex, and the insula, which is awareness of the body on the inside, right. and parts that get tend to get quieter are more in the parietal lobes in the back that have to do with a sense of the um, body in space. And that as one gets more active and one gets quieter, that can lead to what people have noticed is more of an out-of-body sense or more of a diffuse sense of oneness with everything. And then last, um, meditation is associated with more gamma waves, which are very, very fast um, waves. What that means basically is that in deepening meditation, there is a spreading and an intensification of the entrainment of billions, literally, of neurons in the brain all pulsing or firing rhythmically together. And the uh, evidence of that rhythmic firing uh, is picked up by the pulsing of the electrical currents there, the microcurrents in EEGs that can register gamma waves going 30 to 50 to 80 times a second. See, okay, that's pretty electrical. All right. How about maybe one or two more in the back and then time for feeding the body. Anybody in the back there? Yes. We're in the back. Great. I love it.
2: um, So my question, I've heard that in deeply concentrated states.
0: Could you uh, stand up? Sure. Great to see your face. Thanks. (laughs)
2: In um, deeply concentrated states, some people experience what's termed as um, meditative light.
0: Meditative light? Light. It's yeah. kind
2: of a visual experience, and I was light. just wondering if that's described in the literature.
1: In Western literature or meditation literature?
2: Um, I guess in the Western literature. Yeah.
1: Um.
0: Maybe in the TM. There's some stuff in, in TM. Some, some, a lot of the great some, research on meditation is from TM. It's from TM. They started a long time ago, bows oh. to them. Yeah.
1: In terms of experience, yeah, there's there's a couple of things going on there. One is, uh, Rick was talking about the areas that, that get quiet uh, during states of intense absorption when you tend to shift more into cingulate and frontal lobe function. One of the areas that gets quiet is the occipital lobe, which is your visual processing center. And a number of things that, that can happen there which include visual illusions and things that uh, you know, perhaps even some of the mandala experiences that people have have to do with sort of spontaneous quiet activities back in the back of the brain that the brain is starting to take, tell a story about. Um, I know my first teacher uh, uh, Shinzen Young down in Los Angeles when I was reporting that the first day-long retreat that I went to and I said, well, I, well I'm sitting here and all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm seeing this purple light that's starting right here at my point of focus and it kind of does this and keeps it exploding and expanding. He said, that's good, you're concentrating. What? Well, thank you very much. He really told Rick to take fewer drugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, so I went to sex and rock and roll, I guess. Uh, but the, so there there is both a an eastern understanding of that as a marker of concentration so that that the obs, the self observation that when one is concentrated this these, these sensations arise and the a western understanding of the neuroanatomy of the occipital cortex that if one is doing this task which involves shutting down and sort of ex- beginning to uh, exclude unnecessary perception that the spontaneous activity of the brain, some of the, the Theta Delta Gamma activity is coming up and the brain is then looking at that. The important thing, and I think this is one of the things that I said actually in an earlier question, the important thing in all of these sensations that arise in, in meditation practice is that they're actually not the focus. That the focus is concentration and insight. That the focus is all the way through to nibbana, and 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 nothingness, and all of the other things that are along, the visualizations, the sensory experiences, the 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 kriyas from um, uh, that can happen in the body with all these electrical sensations, that, you know, the kind of kundalini experiences that can happen to people, the out-of-body experiences, even the near-death experience. All of these things. Are and the, and and I'll take my documentation on this from the Buddha. All of these things are Maya. They are all distraction. They are to be seen. They are to be observed. They are to be noted. They are to be dropped because they are not. The, they are not the focus. And I, the, you see that litany again and again and again in the Majjhima Nikaya as you move through experience. And experiences can be incredibly complicated, and you know all of this stuff. And he says. Don't get distracted with that. That's not the point.
0: Okay, thanks. Okay, Thank you. Yeah, and one more and then we'll have lunch. Great.
1: Um, hi, my question's on
0: um, binaural beats, the isochronic tones, the whole brainwave entrainment, using technology to try and get into those delta states or some of the states, the deeper meditative states. And some of these um, folks claim it's a shortcut to... You know, you can cut 10 to 15 years off your practice and if you meditate for a year to two to three years with these programs. And I was curious if you saw any literature, you know, is, is there anything in the literature that supports any of their claims or or is there nothing? No substitute for good old yeah. practice. You
1: know? um, I think first part, the it's certainly my hope <laughs> that it'll take 10 to 15 years off of mine. Or that somebody will discover something because I don't, I don't have the 30 years of monastic existence to pursue this stuff. Uh, so I, and I think actually there, there is in, in my sense of what Western science focused on these attainments is learning may allow us to do these kinds of practices to a depth that required a monastic focus in the previous centuries. That we can now do in householder life, because it seems to me that that may be that I think for me is the potential gift of of Western scientific analysis and psychological analysis of these processes to the meditative tradition.
0: I think um, it's like a lot of things with new technology. You know, when you're on the frontier, there's some really great stuff. There's also some quackery. Uh, And also there's the rule of thirds in clinical practice, which is usually anything will be really great for about a third of the people. It will be kind of helpful for about a third of the people, and it will do nothing for or even harm about a third of the people. And so you want to find out which third you're in for which technology. You know, For myself, uh, the thing I like about concentration practice, which really pushed my own process a lot, was the simplicity of it. Reminds me of lifting weights. You either do it or you're not. You're either on the breath or you're not, you know? And I like that kind of simplicity. Uh, Anyway, and I suspect there's ultimately gonna be no substitute for that. And the the intentionality, in other words, the thing about these methods, I mean, Gurdjieff had this great line about drugs, which is that they're like telescopes. They can show you the land, but you've got to walk there yourself I suspect these technologies will transport us briefly, but the long-term cultivation of the loving heart, the long-term abandonment of clinging to this individual personal self, I suspect there's no substitute for that. I mean, the will toward renunciation. Not so much of what concentration is. Ultimately, we renounce involvement with all the peripheral stuff, and we just drop ever more deeply into the heart of being.
1: But but that, that being said also, that having the telescope to see that piece of land and know that that piece of land exists.
0: Yeah, it is conviction, your, one sets of the seven factors of enlightenment.
1: Yeah, the, the, first, the first point on the Eightfold Path is right view. And then right intention. And then right intention. And so if there is a technology that can give you right view for you know that third or 40% of the people who can use that technology, that's useful means, that's very skillful.
0: By the way, this is so wonderful, these questions and this whole yes. conversation. Wow. But we have to have lunch. And before-